I'm your host, Josh Allen. Welcome to episode one of Still Rolling, the podcast that delivers everything and nothing in equal measures. You'll get a bit of film industry chat peppered amongst anecdotes from seasoned professionals and some folks that are just finding their feet in the industry. It's brand new. This is our very first one. In this episode, we get to meet a friend of mine, producer Bryn Musselwhite. He's a man you call on when you to assemble the necessary parts to make a car film. He talks to us about the most mental thing he's been asked to price up. It's not ruining the surprise by saying it's surfing on lava. And Bryn also talks to us about throwing his hat in the ring when it came to running shotgun with Juan Pablo Montoya. And we find out why I shouldn't be allowed pets. Okay, so I've just got a message from my wife and she's yeah. got sound and picture. Amazing. Right, we shall continue then. Bryn, I've rudely interrupted you there. I was just trying to interject slightly because you look way younger than you are. If you're talking about working in the 90s, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't even an, a formed being yet. I was still a child at that point in time. Work was merely a myth to me. So yeah. please go ahead. You were in the middle of 90, what, 98? 90, 96, drove across America, 98, uh, became involved with Granada Television. Let's rewind that a sec. A sec. 96, go. 96, uh, I wrote to a car magazine that I'd read for many years, sold an article to them on the basis of driving across America, which I did with my best mate. You know, everyone goes travelling after college. Uh, that then led to a career very abbreviated for the next sort of 10 years in freelance photojournalism for car magazines. In 1998, I became involved with Granada Television through a friend who worked for them, who gave me the heads up on a job there, freelance job. Uh, I then worked with them for a number of years alongside the journalism. I kind of never really got involved on a full-time basis in either. And, and then when people stopped buying magazines in the late noughties and that market declined, uh, I then uh, became more involved with video and film production, uh, which I'd done a little bit of for DVD type productions. Through I feel like we, skate, we skated over too much of the first bit there. I feel like what I'm detecting is a passion for cars at some point in time. Am I right in thinking that? We want to elaborate the context for the viewers here. Yeah. So the, the cars, trying to the make cars money, are right? a it's, yeah. very, it's not been a career. It's been a, a stumbling through life basically because of cars. There's There's been... Not many, uh, not many conscious decisions to sort of actually focus on one thing. I've been very much presented with something and gone, yeah, I'll give that a go. And generally, because you rotate in one world, I'm sure if, you, if you're all about cooking and filming cooking, then you're going to meet people who are chefs and naturally it's going to lead to restaurateurs and all that sort of stuff. So it's just the same with the cars. How I met you um, was through a particular form of car enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, which we were both into. Yeah, a form of car enthusiasm. We both uh, both went to drifting events. I was commentating. You were there filming them. And I mean, that's a loose term, isn't it? I was trying to film them, I'd say. Yeah, Don't but wasn't it, wasn't it joyous, though? Because I used to sleep in a camper van or a whatever I was driving at the time at these events. And I got those jobs because I wrote for car magazines. So I knew about lots of different types of cars. And... Looking at it now from a commercial point of view, we both work in the commercial film world. It, you, you don't leave home without a risk assessment and without uh, weeks of planning and client meetings and stuff. Back then, I, I used to wake up at seven o'clock in the morning in the corner of a car park in Wembley somewhere, <laughs> try and find a cup of tea before I then went live on a microphone for nine hours. It was, yeah. uh, risk it was incredibly was liberating. 
risk assessment was a thing that was a bit of a I personally didn't even know what a risk assessment was then it was something that was asked for by insurance I guess but at the same time it was like I'm sure you remember there was one particular occasion where we were driving around chasing vehicles in what would be a tracking vehicle back then that, that was quite possibly the worst tracking vehicle that I think we'd ever chosen wasn't it, it was this I think you're underselling it. I honestly do. <laughs> well, I can remember Al, uh, our mutual friend, Al Clark, saying to me he needed something to mount a camera on the back and you guys were going to do this filming thing. I was like, yeah, cool, you know. And we figured this V8-powered Land Rover would be up to the job. And as it was, it was absolutely hopeless because it had no suspension. It wasn't actually that quick and all those other things. And yeah, but uh, I think you need a bit more context there. So I'm sure some people watching will have some idea of what it takes to film other vehicles from vehicles. So we'll assume that a few people have an, a basic idea of what that looks like. So in, in modern context, what we now understand is the best way to do this is either mounting cameras on vehicles or having a having a vehicle that has a rotating camera arm on it, which has got all sorts of suspension and gyros that make that kind of thing happen. Uh, the vehicle that we had, we actually had two, forgetting one of them. Bryn's vehicle was this, go on, Land Rover, what was it, series? Oh, it was a, it was, it was a hodgepodge parts. It looks like a, a very, very old Land Rover, but right. underneath it was other bits of Land Rover and Rover and all stuff. But yeah, it was very, very low, basically. Yeah, so this vehicle was just, yeah, you could stick cameras to it, but it was pretty slow. Um, Manoeuvring wasn't exactly hot, and we had... Well, essentially, race cars with upwards of three, four, five hundred horsepower, uh, trying to drive in and around it, and that was one of the vehicles. But you're forgetting Al Al Clark again, Al Clark's little MX-5 that he had. Yeah, yeah, and he did a lot of filming out the back of that. And I think, I think sometimes that innocence is bliss. But then I think we also forget very, very quickly how far technology has moved on. I mean, we're talking about. I mean, you're getting over a few facts here. The very fact that we put a tripod in the back of the MX-5. So you can imagine that the soft top MX-5, uh, we just put the tripod in the back and just, did we even, did we stick it down with anything? I don't think I we think did. It I think been, we it definitely would have been gaffer taped or some sort of bungee cord or something like that. One of the arms, Al might jump on this at some point and let us know. So if he is listening or watching any point, we'll have to get him to ask the question or yeah. let us know. But the one of the tripod arms, we basically took the spreader plate off the tripod. One of the tripod arms is sticking between the two seats in the MX-5. And then the other two are spread as far as they possibly could in the back of the soft top area. And then we just basically, I remember this very clearly, the first time we ever did it, we didn't even do it with helmets. And then Andy Harris, do you remember Andy Harris? This Andy Harris is a gentleman in the film industry who has worked on everything. Yeah. Safe to say. We need to talk to Andy as well. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to Andy Harris. We'll certainly come back to Andy Harris. But he says basically he's the health and safety guy. He's looking after us all. And he says, You boys are crazy. You gotta put some helmets on because we're driving around hanging out of the back. I've got a seatbelt around me and just tucked in behind me. And I'm holding onto the camera with my hands. So that's the only thing holding me in the vehicle whilst Al basically maneuvers around these race cars. Well, th th and this is the good thing about talking to you is that our careers, for want of a better term, have all moved along in parallel. So Andy, had, so in 2009, we were at Trafford Park in Manchester, which is the moment we're talking about now. Andy started on Top Gear as a uh, health and safety kind of, just an ambulance crew kind of guy in 2007, so maybe two years before that. Yeah, because he quit the fire service, did he? 
Does that uh, work? He was military, then he was uh, ambulance service, then I think he was fire service, then he now he has MSS. Um, looks after everyone from EastEnders to Top Gear, Mission Impossible, Mission Impossible, Impossible stuff. And, you know, he he gave me um, he made it possible for me to get somebody to jump off the top of the rim of Twickenham Rugby Stadium in London and base jump into the stadium. So we've gone from being idiots in the back of an MX5 and an old Land Rover hot rod to throwing people or not throwing, you know. Gary Connery, the stuntman, jumping off the rim in Twickenham in, in 10 years, basically. So it's, wow. I think that's the perspective here that's important if anybody's watching who's maybe wanting to learn about more of getting into the industry or whatever, is that it will just happen. If you work with good people who have good energy and you stick with them, then you'll end up here. You know, And you have to have that talent as well. I'm not saying I have talent because I don't film, I'm a producer. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you're underselling that slightly. It's just a, a different skill set. Well, God. <laughs> well, I think production is I, the reason why I feel that I can call myself a producer is because I have an insight into what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. so having been a photo journalist, I know how to tell a story. I know how to take a photo, but I know I'm not the best photographer. I know I'm not the best journalist. I have picked up a camera. And, and film things so i know how it interesting, works i hate to interrupt you but interesting no. to see like by your own uh you know description there that you wouldn't consider yourself the most talented version of either of those things if no, I'm completely no. honest, because like one of the things i've been talking about recently is the notion of sort of finding out who you are in the industry figuring out at what point in time i see you sneaking to eat there what are you eating? But lettuce healthy <laughs> at a certain point in time you figure out who you are in the industry and you yeah. have to go down a, a few paths to actually discover what that actually is. And what, you know, we'll get back to my stuff because we'll have plenty of time to discuss that. But what I, what's intriguing about this from my perspective with you, you know, did you, is that a confidence thing or were you just like, were you just that self-aware that you were like, this is my version of that picture. And then, you know, for want of a better example, an automotive photographer, someone like Paddy McGrath, who yeah. then puts out something and you just go, I'm never going to be able to do that. Like, how did that thought process kind of, you know, talk me through that thought process for you. What, where did you make that distinction? I'm just trying to think. I think as soon as you believe you're the best at something you can be, you stop progressing. Um, so, and it's never really been a conscious decision. As I went, as I said earlier on, there's not been a lot of conscious decisions. They've all been quite rash and they're gut based basically. So the being the best thing you can for me is i've been very lucky to encounter some incredible photographers mm -hmm. and to sum it up the reason why they're good at what they do and anybody who is really really good at what they do it's all they do they at two o'clock in the morning will wake up and they'll re-edit a photo because they'll see another setting they can use mm. or if they have a camera they will just eat every single piece of instruction there is about that camera and how it works and all the things you can do with it and, and all the hacks you can do to it and everyone else that's doing things to it. Me, I, I kind of skim through life and I love the variety of experiences and things I've done. So when most of my friends were locked into careers, they were doing very nicely. They had the house, the cars and all that sort of stuff. I... I was living out the back of an old Volvo estate in the Alps. 
And I, you know, there was a number of times, I think my 35th birthday was probably one of the most pivotal birthdays because I woke up in a 25 year old Chevrolet van in the middle of America's loneliest highway. Sorry, how old are you? 25? No, no, no. The van was 25. I was Sorry, 35. Yeah. You were 35. Sorry. I was 35. I, yeah. I was so, so I transfixed by you there. I just got lost in the information. Carry on. <laughs> well, I think that the point being that I, if I ever felt like I stopped learning, I felt like I, well, you know, there's, I could learn something new every hour of the rest of my life and still not know everything. Mm-hmm. So my, my wife always says my seeking is putting my strongest thing. I, I have to have new music. I have to go to new places. So it's been really hard to settle down in the last 10 years and focus on one thing. But as a producer, I think I found a bit of a niche that I can produce. I can get on set. I can be a first AD. I can pick a camera up and go, yeah, yeah you know, I can, I can do this a little bit of this if under a bit of direction. So I think that's how I've been very fortunate to find my niche. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different points that I'm sort of getting from that. But I'm still kind of not getting to that bit where you discovered that it was like, well, of course, from that, you know, seeking new information, educating yourself constantly, and, you know, all those kind of things make sense. But just in terms of like, did you ever feel when you picked up the camera, there was a special connection to it in that regard? Or was do you feel like that was not something that ever really resonated with you? It was just more of like, from what I understand, you were involved with the automotive world. And it was always a means to sort of work out how you could make a living and continue finding ways to keep doing what you were doing. I, I up until a few years ago, when I made commitments that were for life, so getting married, um, having a child, up until that point, I had a very short attention span. Right. So I would look at something in front of me and someone would say, do you want to come and do this? And I'd go, yeah. And the, the, the great example of that was my final term after five years of studying to be a graphic designer. There was a film called Restoration that was filmed in and around Somerset parts of it when I was graduating. And they were looking for extras. But at the time, I had hair down to my, my shoulders used to go surfing all the time, you know, it was the look. And they wanted extras with long hair, so I went and signed up. And I did three weeks on set, managed to talk myself into doing a bit of running for them. Then I went to go and see them at Elstree and all these other places. And my graphic design tutor sort of looked at me and went, what are you doing? It's the, it's the end of like five years worth of study. And I was like, yeah, but this is really cool. And he went, well, obviously you've, you've chosen that that is more important than your qualifications. I was like, no, I haven't. He went, yeah, you have. You've gone off and done that. So it was at that point that I realized that if something felt right and it was put in front of me, I went and did it. Now, the the detrimental effect of that is that you don't ever find yourself deep, deep under the skin of something. Mm -hmm. But the energy, the positive energy, which I like to think I've carried with everything, has got me to the point where now in the commercial film world, I'm very fortunate to work with some of the best people in the industry and to work with some of the best brands in the automotive world. And I still have that imposter syndrome. So that keeps me a little bit hungry. It keeps me a little bit wary. Keep it, it, keep, it keeps me, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if I stood there and thought I was the best producer in the world, and I've seen this as well on numerous sets where you, you, you'll have somebody come in, whoever it might be, and there's certain things they won't do because you don't do it in that role. Right. So when I'm picking Even up, so, I mean. 
yeah you know it's it's below them or whatever and oh if, i see what you mean but yeah like kind of perspective like it's not their job and they're not supposed to do it so they're not going to do it rather than oh, there's, there's always that and i think that is an incredibly tired attitude no, so and, and when you get those sorts of people now they are generally of an older generation it's what they've done you know they work for a union and i understand why unions in the industry exist but i i still maintain if i'm picking up cigarette butts from a a crew that refused to stop smoking in the pit lane of a of a race circuit somewhere it's because i don't want the circuit owner when i phone him three years later to go back to go oh yeah th those guys were really messy i don't i don't give a i don't really give a rat's ass about the crew that are dropping the cigarettes if they're doing their job and they're dropping cigarettes i'm cool with that i'll tell them to pick them up if they don't i'll pick them up and it just means i won't use them again but I can go back to that circuit. So it's just... Yeah, I'm getting a few different points from that as well. Yeah. I mean, mostly it says more about yourself than anything else. You know, the respect there that you carry on yourself and you want to be remembered for the guy that actually gave a crap about who and what you, you know, how you were conducting yourself in that environment, which is obviously really important. I think what I find interesting about the statement you're making about sort of the different, I guess, evolution in how the careers have moved forward and how the industry has moved forward to see the types of crews, and like you said, a generational kind of difference. Yeah. You found a kind of different, in, well, not in chest, but a, a different kind of perspective moving forward, whereas I, mine slightly changed in the opposite direction. So I went, well, as you know, not many people know this, but because they're a new audience. But ultimately, when I uh, started in this world and this career, I was finding my feet with different elements of it. And by the nature of that, kind of had to do with a lot of different things in order to identify where I found my place. I knew I had all these big ideas, but I just didn't know how to execute them. Whereas now, the further I get in my career and discover about this industry, I get to identify that there, there is, or I have personally so much more respect for those people that have committed time to those roles yeah. in order to be experts at them. I look at the title of director of photography and all these kinds of things. I'm like, wow. There is so much more to this. There's so much I did not know about this thing because you don't know what you don't know, which was only something I've probably discovered in the past five years of really trying very, very hard at what I do and really focusing on it is that those roles are respected by me in a completely different way because suddenly I get to respect that there's a crew and each different person on that crew has a different role and each of those roles are there for a reason. And I mean, it kind of gets back to what we're talking about in this producer head. And might, you might have a perspective on this. It's like, at what point these, these different parts of the crew are being negated or being like withdrawn, maybe because it's budget, budgetary constraints, all these kinds of conversations and like how that affects things. I mean, it might be a, a side of a tangent, but. Well, be, being any modern production now is all about risk aversion. So it's, and, and that can go so many different ways. So it's, it goes down to what crew you have on set. So do you have a DIT? Um, because a DIT, a good DIT with their kit is going to cost you anything up to a thousand pounds a day. Um, by the time you've fed them, watered them, got them there, put them in a hotel overnight, all those sorts of things. And sometimes people sort of go, well, yeah, but, you know, we can just download it at the end of the day, can't we? And yes, you can. But as you know, you get a corrupted card halfway through the day. You're shooting something you can't go back to. So not to mention all the other things that are happening during that day. Like we're all tired. We've all got places to be and suddenly we're, we're finished the location. We've got to be somewhere else. and We've got to mobilize to the hotel or something. Well, there was kind of a, there was a sweet spot where data rates 
weren't, you know, five, six years ago where you weren't burning through terabytes at a time, yeah. where you could realistically go back, download in the evening, and it was kind of okay, or at a lunch break in a restaurant, some of that. But going back to the crew thing, anything, as soon as somebody comes to you with an idea or a production of any sort, it's all about the risk. So how little can we get away with? Because my thing is as well, the less money you spend, the, the one thing that really annoys me, right? It's about five years ago, I was on a production for a couple of months in London and there was people walking around with clipboards and backpacks. And I have no idea what they did. <laughs> now, I will, um, I will happily admit when I'm wrong uh, and if they had a role or anything like that, but... Come on, name and shame, who are they? <laughs> We can fight. We can never, never. Although what were you doing there? What was your role? (laughs) I have worked with some. I'm sure people look at me sometimes and go, "What the hell does that guy really know?" Um, (laughs) I just like having you around. Did I ever tell you that? That was it. (laughs) I I just like having you around. But this is the thing with people who use interns as well, and it goes it goes the other way, right? To save money, Mm -hmm. um, people use interns, which is a great way for somebody to get involved with the industry, get experience. And I understand the validity of that experience. But we've had situations before where interns have been relied on for roles which were which they weren't educated about, which they weren't aware of. And it's a double edged sword of that whole thing, isn't it? Ultimately yeah. you get an intern, it's a wonderful opportunity for that person to be involved with. But if that's the production and the exec producer's decision to actually cut costs and just go like, Oh, we can just get some bodies and some hands on something who yeah. from a person who isn't qualified. That's just well, there was also an, there was an instance where where we spent a decent amount of money on retouching out an intern in a one take a one take shot uh, because they were literally stood at the back of the shop and, and it's kind of like what are they doing stood there when the life served. Are you passing the blame here? Are you I passing am, the blame? I am not passing the blame. But were you, the, tra- uh, were, you, were you in charge of getting them out of the shot? Is that what it was? I was told to use an intern, and this is an instance where I would have said risk aversion. I would not have used an intern. I would have used a qualified body for that role who would have understand that when they're stood here and 20 feet below them, there is a Top Gear BBC cameraman who is hiding. There there is a good reason why they would, if they would, somebody who was knowledgeable within the industry would look down and go, ah, I should probably hide. I should probably get out of the way. There's probably a frame coming this way that's going to be... Yeah, exactly. As as literally the jib truck drives past with a camera on the back of it and the action occurring. But there's... How expensive was that shot? uh, It wasn't too bad because, as you know, again, technology, retouching skills, globalisation. You now don't have to go to, uh, you know, a, a big retouching house in London. You can get on the internet and you can find somebody who has lower living expenses but an equal... This is um, what you're doing here. You're revealing your production expense, your uh, little expertise, your little secret, your cheat sheet. The, the, you know, the real secret to production is if it is not being biased. So I've always said this about some. Yeah, I think this is horses for courses, isn't it? Yeah. So not interrupt you too much. I'll let you go back to your point. But it's horses no, no. for courses, isn't it? It's like some productions do require all singing, all dancing, full levels, everyone involved. But certainly when it comes to these, it's all scalable, isn't it? You know, some, some clients. Some yeah. clients as well need to see a number of people there on a production. They need to see lots of high vis. They need to understand what it's... And we've we've had it before where we've been part of a production that's absolutely huge and then it scales down to just us for, say, the second part of the shoot and the material that comes out the back end of it 
is is equal in popularity or quality and it, it, it has been questioned it's been like okay so how did they do that you go well we take some risks yeah mm. but they are insured risks yeah you know we, we're not doing anything illegal um we are maybe working harder mm. than some people would like us to work yeah. but that again is a personal choice it's not something if i do an 18 hour day i'm not going to turn around the following day and go i'm only doing 10 today because yeah. i chose to do those 18 hours and that's on me and i know that causes issues sometimes where people will turn around and go well you, you do a 10 plus one right and, you know then it's overtime and all stuff it's like yeah i get that but I mean, I can already feel us getting into quite dangerous and uh, contentious territory here in that in that whole conversation because precisely that sort of thing, isn't it? It's like at the end of the day, we need to look out for one another. That is the yeah. reality of the situation in this industry. We do need to look out for one another, and there's a reason why unions and various you know, governing bodies exist in order to protect people. And the more things move on, and well, without getting into it too much, you know, there are. This is the way the industry has kind of moved forward, isn't it? There's requirement it's changing again though it's changing again because when i started out with granada tv 20 years ago 22 years ago um it was very very clearly defined what you did no i was working on a lower scale production a lower budget production so we all mixed in a little bit i did a bit of production i did a little i was driving camera cars i was presenting you know we were all doing a little bit of everything that was my first experience but what I would say is that the they're not dinosaurs, they're just the older generation. And it's a personal choice for me, right? So we need everyone in, in this industry. And, and the UK at the moment is going through a production boom, right? We've got so much investment coming in. There's kind of room for everyone. So as much as if somebody wants to be a, a union kind of operative, and a, a union sounds like a strong word, but somebody who just, and I get it, because one day they're working for one client, the following day they're for another client, and another mm. client. So if they're doing 18-hour days back-to-back, the, the client at the end of the week is going to get a broken uh, a broken crew member. But I know my limits, and the, the pretty much the only way I judge it is that if I phone up anybody I've worked with in the past, years down the line, I go, dude, I need, I need you on set. I need someone. I need a... I want them to be able to say yes. So they know that you looked after them, right? Yeah, exactly. So it might, I might, they might have worked an eighteen-hour day, but if they did, I made sure they got more pay for it. They got an amazing hotel. They got, you know, there was there was something in there that showed them that I cared because ultimately, I don't want to live my life staying in. And this was this was one of the first reasons why I got back when I got back into production was yeah. because. I live in the North Cotswolds. It's 45 minutes from my front gate to the departure, uh, to the to arrivals and departure gate at Birmingham Airport. And I would repeatedly get booked onto planes out of Stansted or Gatwick because we were flying within Europe and they were yeah. cheap. And these flights were generally six, seven o'clock in the morning. So you'd have to get there for four. Yeah, so I'd have to leave home at midnight, and then you'd get to Spain or wherever, and then you'd be working till ten, eleven o'clock that night. That day, yeah, that day, yeah. right, and, right. And that's that's cool, you know. That's that's the price you pay for having this wonderful lifestyle. But, but the reality of it was, the thing, is it you know, 
Yeah, exactly. And it, it got to the point where I did one three-week bounce in 2014, something like that. And I ended up with a really bad, I was just basically really, really ill during week three. And I spent two days, two and a half days holed up in a hotel in Almeria. And I was getting, there was a doctor coming in and bringing electrolytes and all sorts of stuff. And I actually thanked my body for doing that because I didn't want to go on because I was being broken so much. It's so interesting that you like have that ve- very real phys- physical symptom of what is burnout, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, so, like, yeah, it was. Yeah, body to go like, oh, by the way, Bryn, you're sick right now. You weren't actually like you were so conditioned to doing that day in day out that it was like, oh, cool, I'll just keep doing the thing, and then eventually it's like, uh, no. Yeah, I mean, my, my guts gave up, my head gave up, and I was I was, I was out oh, of the game. We don't want to know about your guts. We'll leave that. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> well, I just. I had been drinking from a mountain stream as well, which might not have been that clever. <laughs> so we're but, still, uh, what we're doing is getting back to one of saying it's your fault that you got yourself into this pickle in the yeah, first yeah. place. I, I said years ago, I wanted to get only myself to blame tattooed down the inside of my arm, <laughs> but it would probably mean my arm would get knocked off in an accident or something like that. It's uh, been looking like... at it, a bloody stump on the ground with only myself to blame tattooed on it. Um, it's starting to sound like we're gluttons for punishment in this situation, but the positive but I think all all are. there is light at the end of the tunnel. You know? Yeah, but this is the balance in the industry, though, and this is this tumultuous time where I've lost 10 years where it, it's so much easier and harder, and I realise that's the wrong thing to say, to get into the industry. So there's lots and lots of opportunity. You've only, CVP, right? Look through the website at the, the amount of kit you can buy for reasonable money. Right, we all know. I mean, when I first started out, we oh, it's I easier had, now than ever before. Than yeah, we had twenty-eight thousand pounds Thompson broadcast cameras, which You're people had on their shoulders. You're showing your age now. Yeah, but but I was, <laughs> and this is why I think I, I bring a little bit of value to what I do because we we can now get a better picture out of a one thousand pound camera. Right, it's so it, it's having that perspective on it that to know that you cannot sit still. You cannot just sit back and assume that, well, I'm always going to get my money because that's what I've been paid. Yeah. Because in the in the journalism world in the late 90s, I was working with photographers who were getting paid 300 to 400 pounds a day for an editorial story. They were getting paid 12 to 15 pounds per roll of film that they shot. Mm. So they'd shoot 10 rolls of film in a day. They only needed to shoot four or five. Yeah. So that'd be another 150 quid for probably 50 quid's worth of expenses. So what I'm saying, but then they tell me they complain about that because that's what they were getting paid in the 1970s. And I'd sort of turn around and go, but that's really good money. Mm. But they got so far away from that start point when that was really, really, you know, you get paid 400 pounds a day during the 70s. I mean, holy hell. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't even alive in the 70s. No, I don't know. No, like I was a t- I can't remember it, but that you, <laughs> you know, that was serious money that bought you a lot of stuff. So it's more of a point instead of being stuck in a point in time, if you know, I could quite easily still be stuck in Granada television 20 years later going, well, I remember a time when oh, but cool. that, that doesn't keep you alive. It doesn't keep you interested in it. And it makes you tired at the end of the day. You know, I, I will bounce to 24 hours a day if I can until I make myself ill because every day I still feel thankful for being involved in this industry in some way, shape or form. That could be imposter syndrome. I don't know. <laughs> I find that particularly interesting though, because there is an element of gratitude that has to come in at a certain point. 
because yeah. like if you live that, that life with that chip on your shoulder like oh i should have been doing this i should have been doing that or like you said living inside that industry that went and left someone behind it's like well you just can't afford that to happen i think that's true of every industry though i think that's the case is that in any industry in anything you do if you just sit still for long enough you are just going to get left behind i think in order Completely. to progress in anything that you do you're going to have to really think about how you can educate yourself how you can you know not even just educate yourself like for me it's creative you know i look at my role in as a director as a filmmaker generally speaking and i'm always trying to assess the different things that i can do on a daily basis to keep the brain on but also work out how i can get better and it's not always the most obvious steps taken to to just just should move forward you know it's not like there's a book that you go how do i do this it's like just not how it works you know and obviously there's another debate that comes into that with film school and how your education then sort of you know m you move through we talked about interns and things and all the different opportunities that are out there for people to go into work and learn more progressively and more traditionally especially in the industry when you look at camera operators and those kind of people that go i'm going to be an ac i'm going to learn the camera i'm going to learn everything about it i'm going to look after the camera i'm going to then move and be promoted at the right time for me and there's a person that's in charge of your you know of your progression and then they say right cool you're ready for the next step and you're taken on the wing to make sure that you don't miss any of those steps and i for one i definitely miss loads of those steps oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> i really paid for it when i was like when i messed up something like i didn't even necessarily know i'd messed it up until i gave it to someone else and i was like oh here's my footage you guys and i thought i'd rocked it i got the framing right i thought i'd got a really cool thing and then it's like oh, it was like under or overexposed or something like that. Or maybe there was some audio issue or maybe just something else entirely that I didn't even think about because I didn't know. And that kind of gets back to that kind of respect that I now have, you know, have developed over a period of time for those people that are in industry and really stuck out that not even potentially knowing at the beginning that that was the point of it, the point of that, you know, uh, you know, method of education in terms of that staging of it, in terms of the, you know, the formula behind it. Well, I think you, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways of getting into any industry. There's, there's two things you've referred to there. This industry being a creative industry, you have to have it in your bones in some way, shape or form. And we've all met people who have forced the hand. They've looked at what they believe to be an aspirational industry, mm -hmm. the commercial filming industry, any sort of filming, and go, yeah, wow, that must be amazing, without really realising that, you, yeah, you get paid great money, but then sometimes you just don't get paid money for months. <laughs> so there's that side of things, but you have to have that hunger inside you, A, to keep going, but B, to be able to really lock onto and then identify what aspects of the training you need. So I've never had any formal training. It's all been on-job experience. Mm. Um, now I have, I've spent nights reading websites and official trade body websites and all sorts of stuff, researching things. But more importantly, I think I've found and sought out people mm -hmm. who know what they're doing, who have a proven track record, industry respect, and gone, how do you do it? Can I watch you? I don't want to take your job. I want to show you respect. Mm. But I, I really value your experience. Um, so I guess the, the point is everyone will have their own path into this industry. But... I don't think any path starts with, there's my qualification, there's my kit. Can I have a job, please? Yeah. Where's my job? Oh. That, that, that never yeah. happens. 
I think yeah, it's interesting. There's a couple of different, again, tangents to this kind of conversation. I mean, part of the question I want to ask you is how much do you believe is this, you know, innate creativity? And you're saying it's in your bones. You know, I have a kind of different thought process than this, but at the same time, it's twofold because of my own experience. It's how much of this was like, right, I really wanted to do it. And I, I only mentioned that because aesthetic and image and all those things like the image I'm literally creating with the camera whether it be lens or light or whatever was something that came a little bit later down the line my initial transfiction with the industry was like right I want to make that film like something like Scorsese or Tarantino or Guy Ritchie is like always you know enamored with that big vision and it was only later on that I kind of came down the route of like right I've got to educate myself and learn how to make that thing and then you start crossing you know you know ticking boxes with how much of that knowledge you can get from where and that, obviously that's just a that path is different for every single person but it just becomes interesting because one of the things i'm gleaning from you at this point in time is that you say you didn't have the formal education but yet you've spent all this time working your fingers to the bone and that's what you have been doing in that time you've been learning listening constantly yeah i mean it's it, it's very much it's a, a formal education in so much as a structured path of qualifications i, n- mm-hmm. I never had that um but what I had was the energy when someone said to me, go and do that for nothing for three days. And I wouldn't have any money. I'd go, okay, cool. Yeah, I'll go and do that. Because no. it just felt right. And I think if you act on your, your core going, I don't know why this just works. Somewhere down the line, I believe in karma. I believe in positive energy. It will flow out. And it has on so many different occasions when I've, I've lent somebody something. I've tried to help, try to do the right thing by somebody. And then years later, I've literally had a message from them going, oh, by the way, I, I need this. And you did this for me. So I go, wow, okay, cool. That sounds amazing. I think what becomes an interesting point in there as well is you mentioned like knowing it. Like I've made a decision, I'm going to stick with it. And I guess one thing that I have seen over the course of my entire career was like at the beginning, it was just like, ignorance and confidence <laughs> like yeah yeah, like, yeah go yeah. go go i know what i want to do i'm going to go and do it and i know that i love this thing and for me obviously that was initially motorsport and cars and that fun stuff i was like i'm just going to pursue this in some way shape or form until i find a point where i'm told no and then i'll figure out the next bit i guess but there's definitely a point in the career where you start like you said that imposter syndrome comes in the doubt of like, uh, yeah. well, I'm now being asked to make a decision or I'm in charge of my own decision-making. You've got to start taking responsibility for your direction and things. And it becomes an interesting conversation to me because of the fact that I know this to be a fact that a lot of creative people suffer this. But, I mean, I don't know. It's not that it was much of a direction or question asked you specifically, but it was just interesting to me to sort of ask you that question of, in your career, have you felt that, you had doubt in yourself or was there a point in time where you had to sort of go like, I'm the one that's making decisions who always made decisions yourself and always stuck to your instincts, I guess. I have, so to cover those points off, I have not, I think doubt is too much of a strong word. So yeah, that's fair enough. Without, without wanting to go into arrogance, because it's very close. That's what um, I meant earlier. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's, a weird, it's a very good question. It's a very good question because Essentially, I've not doubted myself, uh, but I think it's because I've never really thought about stuff too much. I've never overthought things. So if it felt right, I did it. And if it didn't feel right, 
I stopped doing it, but I gave it a go in the first place. Okay, let's get into it then. I'm going to pause you right there. Yeah. So have you ever messed up really bad? Like you were like, I definitely shouldn't have done that. Professionally? Yes. <laughs> or personally. Come on, with it. Let's get to the dirt. Um, what have I done? Probably one of my earliest, oh, I was going to say my earliest regrets. I am aware oh. that you guys have a lot of long-standing clients. So <laughs> if you've really messed yeah, up, I'm going to keep it brushed to one I've, side. There's, so the one, without getting into specifics, um, <laughs> there's been the, the real eye-opener for me over the last four or five years as we've progressed through the scale of production yeah. is insurance. And it's one of those topics that everyone, oh, insurance. But actually what I found was that it enabled me to do more cool shit. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, more <laughs> cool stuff because that's one of the insured, <laughs> yeah sorry sorry um if you actually did your due diligence and looked at your insurance what i found was a lot of people were uninsured and i have genuinely been stood uh, a couple of years ago at goodwood uh, there was our production crew and another production crew from a very well respected company running a production with this one company that we were both filming and the vehicle was experimental. Uh, you know, you don't have to be a genius to track back through Outrun and see who this was. Uh, but the company who we were filming with were putting cameras on this vehicle. And I was kind of like, oh, you know, we're not allowed to do that underneath the auspices of our insurance and blah, blah, blah. blah. And they were like, oh, can't have a very good insurer, can you? And I was like, well, you know, we actually got what I consider on an educated basis to be one of the best brokers uh, who's really, we look at everything on a case by case basis broke it all down, lots of stuff. So I took umbrage with this. I wander off. I go over to a little corner of Goodwood in five minutes. Everyone's having a cup of tea. Put a phone call into the broker. And I was like, right, how do we get coverage on this? Da-da-da-da. He went, I'll look into it, but it's going to be really expensive and you're not going to be able to do it today. I'm like, okay, cool. But I need to, need to know that, you know. So I then climb back down from that. And I'm like, take away that negative energy of trying to beat him that mm. other guy that's doing the same job as me, who should be a friend, and just go to him cap in hand and say, hey, my insurance broker can't sort it out. Who's your insurance broker? So at lunch break, I then go to this other com- company and the guy who was running the production said, look, you know, this is the situation, bit embarrassing, but who is your insurance broker? So he gave me the name of his insurance broker and it was my insurance broker. So at that point... I said to him, I said, I think you need to speak to your insurance broker. So he then didn't do anything about it. And the following day, I then phoned my insurance broker and said, did X phone you from X? And he went, yeah, he did this morning. I said, was he insured? He went, no, not even nearly. He was so far behind on updating me on what he'd been doing that he probably hasn't been properly insured for the last 12 months. Wow. So it was, and we were dealing with multi-million pound contracts and stuff that would literally. I just feel bad for bringing this up now. It, well, no, <laughs> no, but, but but this is this is part of the education. I think this is part of what um, you can do with CVP is to help the industry. Is because you've got in it to be a filmmaker, right? Yeah. I got I got in it to have a great time and go off and do whatever. I didn't get into it to run a VAT registered company to ensure this to file comp- statements of confirmation all, all these stuff sorts of they didn't tell us about yeah but that's the stuff you have to do if you want that yeah so 
don't be scared of it. Go to the insurance broker and tell them. And if it's going to cost you a thousand pounds to insure yourself for the day, go to the client and say, it's going to cost you a thousand pounds to do this. And if anyone else tells you any different, they're not properly insured and that's on you. I do find that. Yeah, an interesting any company worth their salt now will not take that risk. As they well shouldn't. You know, at the end yeah. of the day, we talk about the fun and games of this. And the title of this one was Calculated Chaos, because that's really what it is. And I want to talk to you about a couple of highlights in a second, because they are some yeah. pretty prolific highlights in what you guys have done. But oh. certainly that's a very important part of it. You know, if you think about it for a second, it's like ultimately those parts of the industry that we kind of like go, oh, I need to deal with that. But no one ever tells you before you get into it. Yeah. It's like, like being an adult having to get a mortgage. You don't get taught about mortgages at school. and You go, oh, that's really, oh, I didn't know about that. Mm. But it's um, there's so much to think about anyway. We're just being yeah. good at it. Like, I want to be the best version of myself in this industry. That's one part of it. But then, like, with a million other things, it's like suddenly you start to see uh, there's different directions of like running your own company versus, you know, working as a, an independent director who's then, you know, represented by someone and all these kind of things. Anyway, but let's get into some of those highlights. <laughs> well, I, going back to one of the mistakes, go on. Uh, it's quite timely. So, so Sterling Moss died. The other weekend and um yeah yeah it was well, double-edged sword he's right? old man he's old as hell he I get lived, it. and he's an absolute he lived more like such an incredible life so people who die in their 40s having lived the kind of lifestyle he had up until his 40s you could argue that they've lived more in 40 years than most people live in 80 most other people would have to live for 200 years to live the life that he'd lived yeah um, but Al, Al, um, Al and I made a, f a series of vignette-type films that were meant to be a big production for, a, for a, a major motor manufacturer in 2012, and it was never released. And Al, at the moment, is editing it together. To We're just going to release it on the OutRun uh, YouTube because Amazing. it's a story that just needs to be told. Um, but the agency we were doing that for, at the time... Come on, plug it in. When's it coming out? When are you going to have it ready for us? Well, hopefully, Al, Al's literally in the in the dying throes now, and without throwing him under the bus and saying it's going to be anytime soon, it will hopefully be in the next couple of weeks. Because it, it, this story is wonderful. In the course of that summer, we basically had to tell the story of Sterling Moss and a Jaguar test driver called Norman Dewis. And Norman was responsible for signing off a large percentage of Jags from the 50s through to the, the late 80s. The guy was... You know, mid-80s, he literally signed off so much stuff. So, dynamically, he was responsible for loads of really good jacks. And we were going to tell the story about how they developed the disc brake and proved it on the Mille Miglia in Italy, a thousand-mile road race, good enough to then bring into production car, um, just everyday cars, and arguably disc brakes have saved more lives than any other development and all that sort of stuff. So, we're out there. It was done before that, right? Just big Sorry? clunky drums that big, overheat. Big clunky them. drums. They had horrible brake fade, as was shown in the early races that Moss did, and, and, and certainly with Sterling Moss and, and Norman Jewis on the Mille Miglia. Trying to help the audience out with a bit of context. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it, effectively it's a part of a car. If you don't know much about cars, discs used to they, they clamp like that. And it's it's a way of <laughs> technology from. Let's get back to Sterling. It's all good. I'm just messing but with we you. We had these amazing series of events with Sterling Moss. And I was crossing a road in Reims in northern France where there is the remnants of a pit lane. So it's a normal 
two-lane French straight road, and either side of it are these abandoned grandstands and pit garages. It's it's an incredibly evocative. Does it as spectacular as it sounds? Oh, what? Sorry. Does it looks as spectacular as it sounds? You will see it in the opening sequences of the film, but uh, yeah. genuinely, Al and I spent an evening there, just stood around filming stuff, just most beautiful evening. And the following evening, we went back with Sterling Moss to, to just have him in this space. And it was Al, me, a guy called uh, Dave Richmond on sound. There was the owner of this incredibly valuable Jaguar C-Type, the owner's son, the owner's mechanic, Sterling Moss and Susie. There was no health and safety. There was no runners. There was no nothing. It was just us, right? And we wanted to get Sterling to do a couple of things, like film him here, film him. And I, to, and I had to cross the road with him. So I'm crossing the road with him, and Sterling didn't move too quickly. And approaching at about 60 miles an hour is a Renault Clio. Uh -huh. And this Renault Clio is bearing down on us. And at the last minute, it's kind of swerves around us. And so, on they go. And I, it, was a, it was only looking back now that I went, yeah, was I insured to have a national icon crossing the road? Can you insure national icons? Is that a thing? Yeah. Well, you can. I mean, you can insure anything you want. Yeah, yeah. So here, here's one for you. Uh, I'm sure Vaughn won't mind us talking about this. When and, and this was context, Vaughn, who go on, no, I'm, I'm about to. So, oh. for anybody watching this, um, Josh and I both worked with other bunch of guys on a production for an American race car driver, Vaughn Gittin Jr., that Josh has done loads of work with at the Nurburgring about two, two and a half years ago. And he did this thing where he wanted to, fast. sorry, that time has gone by fast. Yeah, man, tell me about it. I was going to say 18 months, but it very much wasn't. No. So he wanted to complete one lap of the Nürburgring, which is this hugely historically important large racetrack in Germany. It's uh, massive. It's yeah, not small. 14, 14 miles. miles. 14 miles, yeah. I, I, it might be 14. I'm sure if Al's watching this, he's probably going, it's 21.9 points. <laughs> yeah, because he knows it like Frank's hand and he, he directed part of the sequence. But um, the reality of it was that uh, the, the production dates we were given by this German race circuit were towards the end of november and we had to have good weather to do what we were doing and we looked at insuring against the weather being bad and have you ever looked into weather insurance me personally yeah do you have uh, any from the drone operators and i'm like guys what's the deal right so weather insurance can cost anything up to 80 percent of your entire um production costs no way. You have to pay it and have the policy in place at a bare minimum 10 days before the production. So you have to commit to it basically 10 days out. So there's no long range weather forecasts that you can take into account or anything like that. So the insurance on that production, as I'm sure you can imagine, was a heady six fingers to cover off that. Just in case... Yeah. I'm trying to work out if we can even say how much that... The, no, the I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to reveal the full budget, yeah, that's but fine. it would have been a very, very large amount of money that, as it was, we were we had ice, we had snow, we had rain, all sorts Everything. of things. Fog was crazy. Made a mess of the production. See, like two feet in front of you. Yeah, but it would have cost 80% to cover that 100%, plus obviously the premium, the oh. excess. But it, yeah, it's a, it, but that, I think for me, though, that's one of the biggest 
things is when you start out, you take risks. You hang out the back of a car, right, with no crash helmet. I mean, you're missing the reveal here, though. Come on, what did we do with the weapon? Yeah, we, went, we went back. Oh, no, well, no, 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 no. What did we do on that time? Well, we... we uh, that, that was another professional mistake I made, actually. <laughs> um, we're still in the pits on the first day, and we had two days, and the first day was fully misted out, so we couldn't film. And I can remember having a discussion with the... The, the people we were dealing with at the Nürburgring and saying to them, look, we've booked two days. If it rains, you, you, you know, it, 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 gets right, it gets weathered off. Right. So there is a situation yeah. where the circuit will let you have your money back. If yeah. certain extraneous variables happen. Right. Yeah. And they were saying that they weren't going to weather it off for 75% of the track being under mist that we could still do stuff. So we had to have that day. And I basically tried to turn around, long story I won't bore you with, I tried to do a deal where basically we gave them the following day, because it was meant to be raining, and rain we could legitimately get out of, and then they could they could rent it out to their um, partner's industry pool where manufacturers come and just randomly use it. But they wouldn't have a piece of it, and they were very much locked in. So that's where my kind of slightly flexible way of doing things and trying to do a deal didn't work. Um, but what we ended up doing was... I stuck my hand up in the air and went, look, look, an hour away, there's a most amazing Ford collection. Let's go there with Vaughan, shoot some shoulder material that Ford Performance can use. I think you guys went and shot a load of... Right, to be fair, that wasn't even the story I was getting to. I was talking about the Raptor. <laughs> oh, yeah. How did you forget the Raptor? Yeah, yeah. This is so just we, to give yeah. you guys at home a minor bit of context. just how many memories are inside Bryn's head here. He managed to completely forget that we drove around the entire Nürburgring in a pickup truck and Von Gitten drove it sideways, even though it was an auto, right? It was an auto with no e-brake. No so proper handbrake or e-brake, as the Americans would call it. Yeah. So we couldn't lock the rear wheels up and actually make it easier to slide. So they had to modify a handbrake, which you would normally use your hand. You'd pull the handbrake up and the car would slide. He had to use his foot to actually get that thing sideways. And this, this is the flexibility of having newer style clients like Vaughan. He's hungry. He thinks on his feet in so much as we're there. We've paid all this money. We've got crew from America, from Europe. We've brought three, four cars in from the UK. They've shipped cars from America. Mm -hmm. this, this is a big production for, for anybody. But for him, it was massive. It's uh, the weight it of all this. It's thing for him, right? He, he said it over yeah. and over again. Yeah, and it quite could have easily fallen over on that morning. And we could have had no film. But as it was, we all stood there and went, right. And a German dealer had brought along a Raptor that wasn't even available in Germany. It was a personal import. So we took the plates off it and Vaughan went and drifted. And drifting is when you drive sideways with the back end of the car hanging out. He went and drifted in the Nürburgring. We created a piece of media. We then went through Ford in Europe and went to one of their other locations. We filmed some stuff they had there that gave him some social media clout. He then put that material out, and that was enough to convince Ford to refund going back the following year. But it would have been very easy at that point just to roll over and go, oh, the so weather, oh, the Nürburgring, oh. But instead, you go, want this, how am I going to make it work? Yeah, and it's important to remember that the pockets of those clients are not infinite. And no, they're no. not, you know, the money runs out at some point and all that budget gets aside at some point in time. So those kind of things, even to have the, you know, flexibility to be able to make that happen for us and 
a complete punt at that point in time. No one had pitched it back to the client. Ford were unawares. They brought the factory Raptor from a dealer. It was the only yeah. one in Germany, right? Yeah. And the guy brings his own car down, basically, with his own road tires on it. And we're like, we'll just, we just need it for a few hours. Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> we took the plates <laughs> off it, and then they broke the e-brake as well, because the, the e-brake, which is like the handbrake on a European car, is on the floor that you put your foot on it, and it just holds down. And Vaughan was basically... They, his mechanic modified it so it wouldn't when you put your foot down stay down he could pump it to try and bring it around and it broke it um, i remember that now but i think I and, and it does sound like were we properly insured to do that and arguably are you actually insured on the nurburgring if Vaughn had made a mess of that raptor to the point he that it, it. Destroyed, he said that on camera though to be fair he would have bought one yeah yeah he but knew that getting into that car he knew he was paying for that vehicle if he trashed yeah. it he was buying one and he knew that. Exactly. So, and that's the situation where you guys and the production, it's taken, the decision is taken out of your hands and it's very much in the client's hands. He yeah. was able to make an executive decision at that particular point in time. And then subsequently, you're able he to was, keep you know, He was executive producer. It was his own money. It was his own Absolutely. budget. The show so must think, go on in that case, right? Yeah. And it's, it, it's taking that acceptance for your career, for your position in life. I, so I don't believe in luck at all. Mm-hmm. it's not it's not so i don't and that goes for bad luck so if something bad happens to me if i end up somewhere and i'm skinned i've broken down and whatever it's because i put myself there so if at two o'clock in the morning you're on a location and you're tired and you're bored or whatever that's your choice you put yourself there and that's another important thing i think that people need to understand understand to be successful in the industry is yeah. You put yourself where you are. Oh, you man. are responsible. One, one of the biggest lessons in my entire career and is adopting this philosophy of understanding quite simply that you're in charge of where you're at, whether it was wake yeah, up yeah. in the morning and the first thing you decided to do was whatever happened next. Well, guess what? Wherever you end up at the end of the day and the following subsequent day and week and month and year after is all on you. And as soon as you realize that and start taking responsibility for those actions, honestly, my life completely changed. Seriously, it was that much of a big difference. It is, and it is life changing. I think when I realised that, probably uh, my late teens, early twenties, when I began to see the consequences of my actions, and it was putting me in not not a great place. I just had very average, crappy jobs that you know lots of people have, right? And they work for them. It didn't work for me. So although it sounds like I'm being derogatory to whatever job it was I had at the time, and I'm sure there's still people there doing those jobs, it just wasn't for me. And I've often looked on that as being a bit of a bind, which is how I ended up at the age of 35, living in an old Chevy van, you know, on my own going, oh, I did this, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah. When you were just freezing cold, eating out of a can of beans, you were just like, yeah, that's going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's taking responsibility. And I think the creative industry, which we work in, Mm. is, is, and it's like committing to kit. I'm not trying to bring this back to CVP for any other reason than if you use the example of buying something, like investing in a serious piece of kit. People believe that if they have a camera or they have a lens system or whatever, that, you know, well, I'm going to get the work, I'm going to do this. And when the work doesn't come in, they can blame the kit and they go, well, yeah, they didn't the investment. Exist. I didn't buy yeah, the yeah. right thing, so now I'm not getting the work because I didn't get the right one or whatever. It was. Yeah. Yeah, so there's lots of... something I've heard, like, testimony of personally, but I definitely understand the stigma attached to it. For sure, there's, like, definitely a point in time where a lot of ops or whatever those kind of people go like, oh, yeah, if I have that thing, I'm going to get this. You know, it, I'm going to get this using- my camera and now I'm going to be on 
you know, film sets. It's like that's yeah. just how it works. And yeah. far from it, you know. Like you said earlier, you started on this conversation, but Andy Harris gave you a certain amount of opportunity that put you in places. Well, he did the same for me and not for want of asking. You know, I really did. I had a lot of respect for him as a person, but I knew that he was a genuine guy that could kind of come to him with requests. This is Andy Harris we were talking about earlier, who is now working on, you know, Mission Impossible, yada, 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 just to bring some context back to that individual. But he was one of the ones that gave me one of my first opportunities to work with the World Rallycross Championship as an independent filmmaker. Yeah, I literally hit him up and was like, hey, guy, nice to catch up with you. Where are you at? What are you doing? And he was very sincere in his interest in And that was something I had a lot of respect for. I didn't even understand that at the time that he just cared. It wasn't like catching up. And he he sincerely cared about me and what I was doing. Yeah. And when I asked him about what I, you know, he asked me about what I was interested in. I was like, I would love to work at top level motorsport in any case. And he had an opportunity for me and made an introduction. Yeah. And that's all it took. And I ran with that. You know, he didn't make anything happen for me. It was very much like, here's the guy you need to talk to. Now you've got to go and make that thing happen for yourself. Yeah. And Andy, Andy, I think that's the other thing is being social within the industry and it's it's very hard sometimes because we are all freelance. Essentially, we are all in competition with each, with each other. But if you have a product and it is of any decent quality, there will be work for you. And if there isn't, then your quality isn't good enough. Attitude is wrong or your energy is wrong. And change one of those things. And I genuinely believe, you know, 20 years now, the phone has rung, emails have arrived, mm. something has happened. If you're watching this historically, right now we're in the middle of the COVID-19 lockdowns of 2020. We, we don't know how long they're going to go on for. We're six weeks in today, I think it is, in the UK. Arguably, would this have happened if we hadn't been locked down? Would I be talking to you on the forum of, you know, one of the biggest kit suppliers in Europe? Uh. Maybe not. So it's, it's interesting just, when you think about that, of course, and you know, a testament to that us cultivating those opportunities within yeah. this time. And that certainly isn't an opportunity out there for everyone, but there are opportunities and ways and means to do these kind of things. Well, I mean, there's, a yeah, there's a space for you. Yeah, yeah. There's a space for you, and you've got your own story. There's a there's a military. Um, I think it's a military slogan. I've never actually <laughs> tracked it down, but it goes something like nobody's nobody's coming. It's up to us. Uh -huh. And I don't know whether it's a, I don't know where it's from, but it, it says it all to me because it's kind of like, yeah, I am responsible for me. And I think this goes through for so many different things in life. When, you know, when my, when my modified old car breaks down, having spent thousands of pounds on it, fixing something, yeah. it's because I haven't fixed the bit that broke yeah. and I'm expecting it to do something that it shouldn't be doing. So when you, when you bounce a camera out the back of a car and you drop it or you leave a, a lens by the side of the road somewhere or whatever, who have you got to blame? You can't yeah, blame yeah. the crew for hustling you along or whatever. It's like you are responsible for you. I'm 100% I'm with you on that side of things for sure. I, coming back to that bit about, I mean, you ticked a few things there about quality of work in terms of you know making sure the next part of the puzzle is is in there for you. And I, I do sympathize with a lot of guys and girls that are getting into this industry and trying to find those opportunities because, because of the competition, because it's very yeah. easy to sort of discount your own value. This is why I mentioned the thing earlier in terms of mentioning like the doubt element. I wasn't necessarily talking about doubt, but more just like a, an ability to see your value in what it is and worth. And 
more often than not, I'm seeing a lot of very talented individuals that don't necessarily have the confidence to move forward and find those opportunities. So I, I agree with what you're saying, but at the same time, there is sort of a sideline to that. And I guess I feel, I don't know, I don't feel a responsibility to sort of at least try and help those people understand that there's ways and means to put their work out there because the reality is it is different for everybody. But I just feel like there's probably more to that puzzle, probably more than we've got time to get into right now, if I'm completely honest. The social media, <laughs> you know, social media and social media as we know, psychologically can be very damaging. In all honesty, I'll pause you right there. Let, rather than get into that, I yep. would say if someone wants to work very specifically in your line, so automotive commercial world, and someone wants to pick up a camera and even, I mean, we talked a bit about interns and, and that, risk, you know, that, <laughs> that risky set of stuff, but like, how would someone go about meeting someone like yourself and at least getting the first run on the ladder. Cause I'm, I, you know, in terms of Go thinking out. about it that way. So I, you know, we, we went through a technical run through this morning of how this was going to work, break down. And I've ended up filming on my phone. So, right. It does 60 frames a second. It does 4k. Uh, we've, you might've seen recently on, uh, on social media in the last week, the guy that's taken the photos of the Lamborghini hurricane on the treadmill. And he's kind of put a water spray onto it and he's, taking the photos and made it look like a real car. You know, it looks like a real tracking shot at night with spotless and stuff like that. The availability, even if you as a 16-year-old don't have a camera, maybe you know someone that's got a really fancy mobile phone. Go out and create with it. If you're good enough, it will be in you somewhere. You just need to liberate the experience within you. It's like... You just need to get it out. So if it doesn't work the first time, film again and again and again and again and again, and you will come across something that you genuinely enjoy and you love doing. And you and now, you know what? For free, you can edit it on your phone and you can upload it to YouTube. And YouTube is that good. People like CVP put stuff out on it live. That's how much value they place in it. So you can then send that YouTube link via a free email account to every single person that you can find on Google that calls themselves a film company or a film producer. And all it's going to cost you is time. I'm going and, to tell them to all email you now. <laughs> but I, I, seriously, I get emails probably once, once a week, once every couple of weeks, you'll get an email from somebody saying, hey, um, here's my show reel. I want to get involved, blah, 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 blah. And I, I always try and reply. It's not yes. always possible, I'll admit. Um, but I always reply and I'm very clear with them. I'll, I'll go, look, there's something in what you're doing that's really good. Or I'll be very straightforward and I'll say, hey, right now, looking at your work or whatever you sent me, or if you haven't sent me something, then how am I meant to tell how good you are? And mm. um, there's not something for us to work with you. And if there's an opportunity, I will contact you because if we're ever in Inverness and we need somebody to do some running for us, and I will always say to them as well, because I always go, I'm prepared to work for free. I said, preparing, being prepared. No, 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 no. What I was going to say was, Don't. being prepared to work for free is not a reason to use you. Fair, so fair. I, I, will, yeah, I will pay you. Um, and whether you want it or not, I see a value in what you do. Because if I don't see a value in what you're doing, I'm not going to get you long for free because you're going to cost me more money than you're going to give me you know, help. I so, guess that's something that people negate, isn't it? It's like just because yeah. you're here for free doesn't mean it's I don't have to pay to feed you or get you there or all well, this it's also it doesn't make you useful. Of course, that's very very true. <laughs> and, and if you're working for a half decent client, 
if you turn around to a client and go, I've got an assistant, they're 100 quid a day, they'll go, okay, cool, because they know there's a value in having somebody there. So there has to be a justification for you to be there. And the reason why you can justify being there is because you're good at what you do. And the reason why you're good at what you do is because you've done loads of it. You know, I took thousands of photos before I sold one. Mm-hmm. I wrote thousands of words before I sold one. I didn't walk into this job. I did it for years before getting paid for it. So that's what I'd say about how to get into the industry is go and do it. Don't expect someone to pay you. If they're going to pay you to learn on the job, you're not going to get paid much and you're only going to learn what they're going to show you. And if you're working for one person or one company, you're only going to learn their way of doing it. Yeah. So, so you your message know? here is if they're getting after you, show you something, tell you something, but ultimately prove something that they've been up to, show some kind of yeah. show some work that they've been doing and then you can at least give them some. It might not be straight away, but you can give some feedback. <laughs> it's, like, it's like an audition, right? No one's going to yeah. put you on stage without doing an audition. You're not going to walk into an audition never having had, never having danced before. So have a body of work. But the ego thing is then what holds people up. So they'll send some work. So, for example, yeah. I will get sent a link to a video and it will be, I'm trying to not be too specific in case anybody watches this and maybe sent me something. But say, say someone's <laughs> filmed something. No, but seriously, some, yeah, someone's filmed it. something at a car show and it's formulaic, kind of like swipe up, down, reflections in everything, but just badly composed, badly angled, not really thought about it. What they've done is basically looked at a video and copied it. Yeah. Then they they're, thought not, about it, yeah. they're not doing it for themselves. They're doing it because, but, but then they present it and go, I love this piece of work. Everyone tells me it's brilliant. Everyone tells me, and it's that Facebook thing, right? Where someone puts up a very average picture, which technically, forget the creativity of it. You can, you can technically take it apart and, and and all their mates are, it's amazing. Oh, it's brilliant. Actually, it's not, it's really not. And if you think it is, you're going to stop learning. And that's why going back to what I was saying earlier on about my photography and my writing and stuff, I'm not the best. And I look at the people who I consider to be amazing because technically take out any sort of creativity out of it or anything like you can look at what they're doing and they have sweated tears and blood for it. And I haven't. Mm. So I can look at them like, and it makes, how do they do that? And I'm already halfway up the ladder. Feel free to shout some people out. Feel free to talk some people up. Feel free. If you've got some people that are really affected during the industry, and you like their work, feel free. So there's a couple of people recently over the last, there's, so as you know, I was involved with a website called Speed Hunters, which is funded by, Speed Hunters is oh, a, the roundup, yeah. what is it? It's an automotive, uh, an automotive car magazine on the web, on a website, basically. It's funded by EA Games. It was set up as a research portal for the Need for Speed franchise so that they could stay connected to global car culture. And I worked quite closely with it. I was the editor-in-chief for a short while in about 2013, 2014. I, mean, I feel like I want to add something to that before you get right into it. Just to give some broader context, this place wasn't just this big corporate giant that was like sponsored by EA Games and Halo stuff. It very much was like, you know, 
a pot of all of this different car cultures worldwide. And they really did a great job. But for people like myself, when I was making films and I really didn't know what the hell I was doing, I was just learning. They would sometimes see what we were doing or trying to do and celebrate that. And that honestly changed so many things for us because it, it gave us something to like aspire to. Like, I want my film to be this good so that those guys will represent it. And it yeah. gave us an opportunity to go like, there you go, it's out there. And then we're not being judged, like you said, the Facebook effect or whatever it is, the social media effect, where it's just like people adulation pouring in, like, oh, it's amazing. It's like, I don't need to hear that. I need to know, is it, you know, is it on the level that I need it to be at? Not on the level that, you know, in order to progress, in order to learn well, the next thing. It depends where your aspirations are. If you want to put something on your own Facebook feed and have people that essentially you've chosen to interact with by either having them like your page or they're just your friends, then you're only opening your world up that much. If you're prepared to put it out there and have the good and the bad come back. Which is scary, right? Because it is. the bad can be good as well. It, but, but it doesn't, we've been told that it's scary. And I don't think it is, right? I, I, I have done so many, as you know, I used to host loads of events and you'd stand there, I would get slagged off something <laughs> horrible on the internet, you know? What does that guy know? He doesn't know. I'm like, cool. From your perspective, if I have got the model name of a vehicle wrong, and that's what you know about, you know everything about JZX Chasers or something, and you know that it's a 110 or a 100 or whatever, and I don't, then I fully respect your level of knowledge. I'm not there. So fair enough. I got it wrong. I'm an idiot. From your perspective, they also have not stood, you know, it's the old Elvis quote, right? Never criticize what you don't understand. You never walked a mile in that man's shoes. Mm. So just as much as I wouldn't say, well, you're an idiot. You're only into Mark II golfs. No, don't call me an idiot. But if I'm going to put myself out in the air on the internet, then I'm opening myself up for that. It's like when, when someone has their photo or their film ripped off and changed around, you know, and redistributed by everybody. Like, that's the internet. That's the way it works. <laughs> yeah, it sucks still, though. <laughs> like, that's not much fun for anyone. It's an interesting kind of point that we get. And we run away with a little tangent there. I'm cautious. Yeah. We've been talking for quite a long time now, which is quite interesting. I want to see if there actually yeah. is anyone paying attention and watching back there has any questions. I'm going to leave that to We've got some wonderful admins here that are making sure things running well in the background in the names of Jake and Joe from CVP. Um, so if there are anyone watching in the background, if there is anyone watching in the background that wants to ask any questions, feel free to chime in there on your comments and send them through to those guys. They'll pop up on our feed if there is any. But if not, we'll just carry on talking. Well, so, I... yeah, there's a couple of things I wanted to get into. Okay. Highlights. Come on, man. There must be some major highlights for you. Let's talk filming. Let's talk about what you've been doing. I say more recently. I mean, the thing that the public will know you guys for is obviously the Bigatti situation. And yes. Mr. Al Clark, who has worked with you on that situation, has more recently come out and actually shown a bit more of the BTS and that sort of thing. So yes. to give a bit more context behind that, what on earth, why did the internet have uh, a fascination with this specific film? Uh, I think because... A, so the, the film we're talking about, we filmed in the summer of 2017. It, the, at its core, there is a Bugatti Chiron, which is a multi-million euro uh, hypercar, 
made by the Volkswagen Audi group. This is for non-car people, if anyone, you know, film is watching us. Um, and it's one of those cars which is like a halo car, right? It's a halo product. It sits at the top of the, of the pile. And effectively, there's one shot in it where this car accelerates from zero to 400 kilometers an hour. Which and then miles stops, an hour? What is that? Uh, 240, 250 miles an hour, right? So really, uh, really, 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 really fast. Really fast. Really fast. And it's the sort of thing that's a very simple idea. It's an idea that Al had. He pitched it to Bugatti. Um, he, he'd done a, a film for Carfection, maybe, one of the, one of the internet-based channels, mm -hmm. Drive Tribe, something like that, with the Chiron. And they really liked the film that he made, Bugatti did, and said, do you want to come and do some filming on our launch? And Al was like, actually, it's not the sort of thing I usually do because on a launch, you film journalists and people just driving the car and you then give them the footage and then they create their own media. So he went and did that. He then thought, hmm, could I film one going at top speed? Because he loves kind of real speed. Long story short, five months later, six months later, we end up at the Volkswagen Audi Group test track in northeast Germany and Bugatti have arranged for us to do it. I mean, another reason why it's a big deal as well is because more often than not, uh, there's a false sense of speed that's kind of interpreted yeah. because of a number of these issues, like insurance, like you mentioned earlier, like actually going the speed and the visual interpretation of that speed. When we think about cameras, physics, how we interpret frames uh, and shutter speed and all these things and how we make things go and look a certain speed, you know, but as, as you said, Al has a fascination with making things actually go as fast as they're supposed to look like they're going, right? I think it's also because he hasn't overcomplicated the process. So as you know, you've worked with Russian arms and a Russian arm is, is a vehicle with a big arm on the top, swings around with a camera on it. They are limited to 90, 100 miles an hour, 110 miles an hour. So if you've got a car that does 250, how are you going to film that car to car? So quite often, if you look at adverts for Lamborghini, Porsche, all these sorts of people, they won't actually represent the true speed of the vehicle because they've got this big crew of yeah, yeah they, they've gone and got the russian arm because that's what you film with and the russian arm will only do 100 miles an hour so that's the speed you film at and that's what the public will be happy with and mm. what we did was say there is a way of doing this it's a little bit ghetto and i i, I put it in inverted commas because it worked so it's yeah. not ghetto and uh, and we filmed it with um, a, a drone uh, it's not really a drone anymore. Basically, it was a, a DJI drone, which Al had had an unfortunate incident with, and he then spent... So up unfortunate to that point, incident, did he crash it? Uh, it, it? It had a bit of a... Did he crash had it? had a bit of an issue and landed in a tree. Um, and whether that was DJI software or not, let's, let's not get into it. But <laughs> the reality is that he then took that crash drone, which had uh -huh. cost thousands of pounds... He modified the hell out of it and he practiced and he practiced and he practiced and we and we went out on ring roads in Birmingham at two o'clock in the morning and we did all these sorts of things for pretty much two years. During the speed limit, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but we slowly built up and he, we used it on a couple of jobs and he used it and all sorts of stuff to the point where it's kind of like, we could put this on the back of another Chiron and it could film a Chiron doing that speed. Mm -hmm. And... The, the the beautiful team at Bugatti went, okay, prove it to us. So we went out and did a proof of concept weekend before the film. Uh -huh. And then we went out the following weekend and we made the film. And it was a very simple film. 
and it revolved around Juan Pablo Montoya, the ex-Formula One driver, driving the car up to 400 miles, 400 kilometers an hour, and back again. And, and setting you got next to him, right? Well, yeah, and that was, uh, yeah, so we, we had a helicopter to film this action. Helicopter wasn't allowed below 900 feet. And uh, in, sensible, if I'm honest, in height, because uh, wow. the local authorities said you're not allowed to fly below 900 feet without the landowner's permission. Right. The whole of the air lesson test track is is huge, thousands of acres. Um, Volkswagen Audi Group owned the whole lot. It was signed off for us. We we had to fly the helicopter in because it's an active active site. It's all trees, but there's development cars out there doing things. So we had to fly the helicopter in through a certain route land it mount the camera put it back up we then had an hour with the helicopter going round, and that was it is it fuel so, or no um we can only afford the helicopter for an hour <laughs> <laughs> so because because you gotcha. you cannot bolt a camera just onto any old helicopter yeah a helicopter has to be licensed to carry that external gimbal so we had to fly the helicopter two hours to get to us. Then we had an hour filming and then two hours to get back. So by the time you factor in the entire day for the crew, you're actually paying for about seven or eight hours of helicopter time. You need to make friends with more helicopter pilots, mate. That's what you need to do. Dude, these guys were not, these guys were 12, about 1200 euros an hour, which for a helicopter with a crew of two and the camera is really great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So essentially, this was on the Saturday afternoon. We on the Saturday lunchtime it rained, and we couldn't run the car at speed. And obviously, spray it would Why have been not? continuity. Well, so continuity-wise, you just would have had huge rooster tails, and yeah. we couldn't have used the footage. So we pushed the helicopter back, pushed the helicopter. Back. I was literally live watching the updates as we were filming, uh. and Al and I were like, "How is this going to work?" We brought the helicopter in put the helicopter up, gave Juan Pablo a radio to speak to the helicopter so that Al could direct him because Al was going to be in the helicopter. They go out, they do one lap, they come back in. Juan Pablo's like, I can't hear anything. I just can't hear him. So very quickly, a gut reaction from me was the only way to fix this is to get another radio that I can talk to Al and I'll get in the car with Juan Pablo. So basically, and all morning you were devising ways which you could get in the car to be a part of this stunt, and you were like, I, Fine, I, I look back now, and it, no, because I was the producer, and I was running the whole production for the production company directly to Bugatti. There was no agency or anything like that. When I stood there and went, I'm going to get in the Bugatti with Juan Pablo Montoya on the radio. Everyone was like, Okay, Bryn. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to nominate yourself then yeah 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 and there were there were other a tough job sometimes but at that point so that as a career highlight uh that was incredible absolutely incredible now, how fast did you go did you go the full 250 we did 261 miles an hour oh that is sickening that numerous is times numerous times that is disgraceful i've been around yeah. 200 miles an hour and like Again, with someone else driving, uh, yeah. the fastest I've been was 188, me driving. And that's fine. When you're in the driver's seat, it's okay because you yeah. know what's going on. You can feel when the steering wheel starts to go and things start to get light. And you know when it's like I was maxed out at that point in time in a very lucky place where I was able to do that. But someone else driving me at 200 miles an hour, I did not enjoy that in the slightest. 
that was like, this is out of my hands. Different, I guess, if you're in the hands of Juan Pablo Montoya. Montoya, sorry. Well, not really, because at that point, you're really in the hands of the car. So we are on a five-mile-long straight. Right. Beautifully maintained piece of tarmac. There are, you know, they, they have sensors in the forest there. If there's animals and they, they see a deer or anything like that, they have to go out and find the deer and they'll no, they'll not run any top speeds or anything like that until they find the animal or whatever it is yeah. and move it off site. So really at, at 261 miles an hour, if something's going to go wrong, Juan Pablo ain't going to wheel his way out of it. You know what I mean? We're, we're, so we're that, out of there. Come on, man. How did you feel? Because like I can having done 200 miles an hour and going like, ah, that was pretty sketchy. But it was in uh, Lamborghini, I think it was an Aventador or something like that, whatever their version of the, the hypercar that can go that kind of speed. And we just yeah. touched 200. It wasn't like we went way over it, but like it was pretty tetchy. So for, to go to 61, there must have been a whole nother, uh, what happens? Is it just like blur or what? Well, you, you do get tunnel vision. So you, uh, firstly, there's the acceleration. Right. And it's, you know, it goes from zero to 400 kilometers an hour to zero in, I can't remember, it was 32 or 42 seconds. It was just some crazily small figure. So the reality is, as soon as the car starts accelerating, your 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 vision goes from this yeah, yeah, yeah. down to that. And everything's... And all you're seeing is the dots in front of you. Um, and like Much time to enjoy it at that point in time. You're looking at one oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buddy, yeah, we, have you we, got this? No, seriously. He, he he looked around. We were having conversations. You know, he, he's kind uh, of he's chilled because although it's actually the fastest he's also driven ever, um, he has done 200 miles an hour regularly on NASCAR tracks and stuff. Like that. You know, he's a kart racer. Um, it, not kart, but, you know, one of the the, the American race formulas. Yeah. Um, but I think the reality is that as an indication of my attitude is that if I don't have, it's like getting on a commercial airline, right? Mm. Getting into the back of a 747. If something's going to go wrong, I am going to make absolutely no difference to this situation. So being sat at 261 miles an hour in one of the most technologically advanced vehicles in the world with one of the most incredibly experienced drivers in the world, which, and the lorry, uh, uh, sorry, the car is telemetry linked to the pit. I can see your insurance brain just going, tick, yeah, I've got the yeah, best yeah. drive, like, I've got the best situation, I've got the best this, everything's kind of okay, and now it's out of my I'm hands, but whatever. ever going to do this, this is when I do it. So it's, so Al, right, I've only been around the Nürburgring with Al. I can't think, I, I went around once with a guy in an old BMW. You know, I haven't driven around it fast yet. Really? I'm not kidding. I've been there five, six times. Yeah, you, you've got, got to go on the GP circuit, but I haven't been around the actual North Life at all. But you've got to do it. I, I think personally, you've got to go for long enough to do 25 laps to even get a scale of how to do it, to mm. even begin to be understand it. But so I went round the Nurburgring a couple of times with Al in this old BMW M3 he had at the time. And he's done thousands of laps, right? Yeah, yeah, he is literally on like fifteen hundred laps or something, yeah. and I, I can remember very clearly someone saying to me afterwards, "Went, well, I wouldn't go out with him. He's way too quick." <laughs> and I, I was kind of, uh, yeah. actually, no, it's not about the speed; it's about the competence. So, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but and it's and it's true of certain people. I know it's true of Al. 
when you talk to somebody who gets into their flow, who is who is organically just doing what they're really good at, they just have this serenity to them. And when you sat there with somebody in a passenger seat, and Juan Pablo did it, Al does it, you know, I'm sure you've encountered people who do it. You know, we're going around this corner and Al's kind of like, well, you know, I, I can go through here at 175 miles an hour. And I've had to say to him before on a radio, on a racetrack, when he's been directing, I'm like, speak up, be clearer. Yeah. Because he just goes into his flow. Uh, and, and that was it. Juan Pablo in a Chiron. What better time than now? Mm. I mean, I can I completely relate to that in, in many different ways, especially what you're talking about. It's sort of organic flow state, or whatever you want to call it. It's just that like experiencing that version of like, right, cool, this person's just acting on like muscle memory and instinct and yeah. all these other things. And that's just what's happening right now. And you're yeah. like, you're in I wasn't now. I wasn't judging it from my perspective of driving 261 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. I was sort of, yeah. So when you're at the fullest extent, if you're, if you've got a camera locked to your face and you're doing, 80 miles an hour and you're like pulling focus and all these sorts of stuff and you're really having to think about it then you've got nothing in reserve mm. but you'll get people who can literally reach over the front of a camera change settings whilst talking to you because it's just they've got that extra they've I done it it's interesting about this conversation so we have slightly different perspectives on it me i would relate to it more personally in terms of just different elements of my life the, the things i'm into in terms of hobbies or you know i mean i tried the racing career once upon a time and so i understand what you're talking about from that side of things too yeah, yeah. more interesting that our different roles are slightly more you know well they're just complicated in different ways you very much methodical in terms of the you know the production side of things and then certainly from my side of things it's like very much the doing like my job is the sole focus of what i'm doing right now yeah i can relate to very much what you're talking about in that regard which you know comes quite interesting well, my, my job is to put you in a situation where you can walk back into a production room or something like that and know that there's a hot drink, some food, and you're going to like it. And it's not going to give you an allergy and it's not going to make you see the inside of a toilet 10 minutes later so that you can go back to doing what you're doing. But, and that's, that's my role, right? Is to, as a producer, is to make sure everybody's got what they want um, and, and to allow them to be this single-minded, focused person. Most of your work's done before you get there, isn't it? If you're completely honest. I've always said, if I've done a good job, I should have nothing to do on location. I have never had that. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally done every job if, on location. If I've you've cleaned, done <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've cleaned cars. A big, but, you know, that's just the way it is. That I, I think I'll be worried. And that's the other thing is that people don't understand me sometimes when I do clean a car or whatever. I'm not being treated before... People have sort of come to me and gone, oh, here's your here's your production officer, uh, office, Mr. Executive Producer, and do you need your assistant? So I'm like, what? Get away. You know, what? I eat lunch with somebody else. I don't want to eat lunch over there. I want to eat lunch over there. It's just, it, it's maybe me not fitting in, and it's been to my detriment sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but I think what does become an interesting conversation here is that, some people watching will have absolutely every idea what a producer does and know how they work with that person. But I guess, again, you know, I have to sort of expand this. <clears throat> Understand there's people who, when I first started this industry, I didn't know what a producer was, what one did, what they were responsible for, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I guess I'm, you know, kind of, I mentioned a bit, a few things there. Your job is done before you get to site, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> 
we'll come back to some of the highlights in a second, but how many things roughly, I don't go into all of them, obviously, we'd be here all day. I know that much because the job is that expansive. But it's like, we're off a handful of things that you're thinking about that the production have to be aware of before you even get anywhere near a site. Uh, client expectation is the first one. So what happens generally is a creative and a client will, the client will go, we've got X amount of money and we want to achieve this. And a creative will go, great, okay, I reckon I should do this. And they have this whole conversation and they go, yeah, great, that's brilliant. And then they get a producer involved. And then what happens is I walk in as the, as the, the fun police and go, can't do that. <laughs> Too many decisions have already been made before well, you even Yeah, and, and so very early on in the process, I then have to manage everyone's expectations uh, whilst also experimenting with what's physically possible, but whilst also main, uh, maintaining the, the job. So if Al, because Al's great, he'll have a conversation with somebody, you know, he's got a lot of good relationships. And the way we work is generally, I'll either bring something in that we need to make and, and he'll be the creative on it and I'll be the producer, or he'll be approached and then I'll produce it. And what happens I mean, is then, I need to maintain that job. Ultimately, there's a couple of things here. Logistics, you know, where it's where it is you're physically going, the actual physical location. You mentioned yeah. one thing already. Where, uh, when, how? Yeah. And obviously, you've got to cater for these people, like we said earlier. You've got to yeah. do all, all of those things have a minefield of other things attached to them, whether it's dealing with freelancer diaries, actually getting the crew you want at the right time in the right place, the specialists for certain things, organizing and orchestrating those things. That's just a small proportion of the things that you have to deal with before you well, even get near, right? Yeah, three, three people having separate hotel rooms for one week is 21 rooms. If you move um, locations three times, you're then having to find 21 hotel rooms in three different locations. So, or, you, know, you see what I mean? It's like yeah, you yeah, have yeah. seven hotel rooms in each location. It, yeah. That doesn't quite break down, but yeah. it, there's... There's this infinite amount of things that happen. Uh, so when you turn up at an airport, and you, you'll have done this as, as, a, as a director, you turn up and somebody gives you a plane ticket. And they go, okay, Josh, follow me. We'll go through, check your bag in, get on your plane. Would you like something to drink? Would you like something to eat? And they get you on the plane. All of that has been thought about by the producer, by the route, or airport, the fact is there good parking, Where's everybody coming from? Does it give the safest flights? So everyone, you know, the other favourite is everyone jumps on EasyJet because they're cheap flights. And then none of the kit turns up at the other end. And suddenly you're in Barcelona having to rent the equivalent of 10 first-class flights to Spain mm. um, worth of kit because the, because the kit hasn't turned up. And everyone's like, oh, no way, you solved that problem. It's like, yeah, but if we hadn't have flown EasyJet in the first time, yeah. We wouldn't and, have had this but problem. that's where your experience comes in, right? And that's so much as a part of the job is that it just is, you know, an expertise drawn from experience ultimately. Yeah. Lots of decisions that you've then understood and learned from categorically across the whole time you've been doing it. And then you get those things like that where you go, okay, someone broaches me with a question and you simply go, no. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not going to do that because that's just but, not how we do it. And I'm gonna yeah, but generally it. you can't say no. Right. So I've got a bit of a motto that I will say yes to anything. <laughs> this sounds uh, dangerous. This does not sound good. This is not good. No, advice. no, 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 no. So th th this is how a good <laughs> producer works, right? 
Right. I will say yes to anything. The only person that says no is the client. And I'll give you an example of this. Come on. I was approached to, so a large uh, technology company wanted to surf down a flow of molten lava. Okay. This is one more time. They wanted to surf down a flow of molten lava. A person? A person. What's the surf on molten lava? So the tech, the tech company um, right. wanted to produce a viral campaign and they wanted to surf down a flow of molten lava. And they'd been turned down. They'd been knocked back by about three different agencies saying, oh, it's not possible, it's not this, it's not that. And they came to me through Extreme International and the brand Extreme because Extreme went, yeah, we can do that. Uh-huh. So I spoke to Al, um, who owns Extreme, who I've done a lot of work with, and... I went away and I costed it up because where do you get molten lava? I'll indulge this. Where do you even start with this conversation? So A, you have to find out how to do it. So it's the how and the where and the, and the, and the when, you know, so the where is wherever there's a volcano. So Hawaii. so We're we're foregoing getting the lava from one place or another. We're just going to the source. I can see the logic. You've got to go to the source because then 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 you've got guaranteed lava, right? I'm on board um, up to now. I'm listening. Carry on. So the volcanoes in Hawaii, they're all national park. Any flow of molten lava, you can't put anything in the ground to secure anything. So we were going to park heavy vehicles, off-road vehicles as anchor points. We were then going to construct a wire suspension system across the top of it. You'd also have a redundant safety system as part of that so you'd have two metal leashes to somebody in basically a furnace suit right on a surfboard made out of the kind of material you get on the nose cone of the Nada. space shuttle yeah space, yep. space shuttles gotcha which yeah you can buy and you can get made you can buy um, you would then hoist you have to share the link bird. afterwards so we can all go and get them <laughs> we it took a little bit of digging you'd have to buy it but um you then hoist this person into place uh-huh. lower them onto the flow of molten lava. They would then move down the flow of molten lava very slowly because molten lava doesn't really do this. It just goes at right. the point where you can access it. We worked out they could probably be on the flow of molten lava for about 20 to 30 seconds. So no visual illusion. We're literally physically doing it. We're making contact with the lava. Yeah. Yeah. You then lift them off, bring them back over, put them down. I really and... hope at the end of the story that you got this done. But carry on, please no. carry on. No, it didn't happen because ah. this is where the client, so that was going to cost £439,000 because you're going to have it's to pay something. £439,000. These guys can, you can surf on modern lava. Yeah. So we went back to the technology company and we said, look, this is how much provisioning it's going to cost, mm-hmm. plus some editing, plus this, plus that. You're probably looking at about half a million pounds. And they went, oh, we don't have that amount of money. We've got about a third of that. I went, okay, cool. What do you want to do? Because you can't surf down molten lava for money. So they said no. I made it happen. They said no because they didn't have enough money. And what they, and what they also did... That is a advert for Bryn Muscle, white producer. I don't know what it is. Well, what they also said was, when I first went to them, I said, how much money have you got? They said, uh-huh. uh, we'd rather not tell you right now. We just want to know how much it's going to cost. Because in their heads, it was probably going to cost them £100,000 and they'd have some money in the bank. Right. So this is why I always say as well, one of the first conversations you have, tell me how much money you've got. 
and we will spend it in the most efficient, creative manner. It's just like um, going to a restaurant and and not finding out how much anything costs, ordering half the menu, and then going, oh, I've only got ten pounds. You know, you need to. People don't like talking about money, but ultimately, there's always somebody with more. There's always somebody with less. I mean, that's a that's a that's an industry issue for for every single person from the very bottom to the very top, isn't it? It's like this conversation, the sooner you get more comfortable talking about money, the better off you're going to be because the reality is you don't want any surprises down the line at any point in time. I myself have found myself caught short on more than one occasion, even yeah. not that long ago. You know, I used to think those mistakes were designated to the beginning of my career, but even not that long ago, uh, you know, just messing up just by thinking like just too much assumption, which is just like, Something that you just go, I know that I don't assume anything. You have these conversations with people, but the better you get about you know, having those financial conversations with yeah. your there's there's no stupid questions. And I think there's there's far again, there's the ego. People mm. won't have that conversation. And, and day rates, right? I've been I've been stood you on set there though. Like people don't want to talk about it because they're shy about it. Like they don't mind charging just, though, do they? There, mate, there's a lot of disparity though, isn't there? Like I know when I first started trying to work at how much I should earn, I didn't have a clue. You know, I was just happy to be making money and happy to be doing it. Whereas nowadays, a lot of that becomes very convoluted because it becomes not only about the investment you have in your equipment and, of course, the reflection of that as a business investment, but then, of course, the experience side of it as well and and the, the level of production. And there's so much assumed knowledge. You're working on a commercial and there's a commercial rate attached to it. It's like, well, What's that number? Like, if I don't have an agent looking after me, what does that number even look like? Yeah, but that's that's because now, obviously, people are not paying for a day of your time. They're paying for 20 years of your experience um, that's put you at that day in time. So that's the difference, isn't it, between the start of your career and the end of, and the middle of your career or whatever. End um, of the career? Do, do we have any questions or comments that we, we need to do have, We do have a couple of questions come through. So we should honour those. Absolutely. So uh, let's go for number one. Would you rather have the most technically proficient person on a shoot or someone who has a good attitude, gets the job done, and knows how and when to have a laugh? So to summarize that, you're looking for the person with the skills on a shoot or you're looking for someone that's got a good attitude that you actually want to hang out with and spend some time with? How much of those two things? Like if you got... <laughs> I was going to say something like Roger Deakins with the personality of... David Brent, someone like that. <laughs> like, are you going to want them hanging around you? Or, um, so there's a there's a motto in business that says we're not here to make friends. So ultimately, nice. it doesn't sound very nice, but it's a good way of looking. So here's another one, right? Um, treat your employees like animals. Whoa, I don't like that at all. You don't like it, but then how do you treat? What does that say to me about the way you treat animals? <laughs> i don't like the idea of it you can ask any of my staff i'll bring them in here right now i treat them they get they get kept better than i do for sure so, so the way to treat an animal is to make sure they're fed they're loved they're i don't warm. have pets by the way anyone wondering and worrying They've about the state of my animals in my house i don't have pets well going back to that question um <laughs> i there's not space in one of our productions for somebody who is not technically competent and has a good attitude so i thankfully have never had to be in the position to go oh you're a really nice person but you're not very good or you're a really technical person but you're not very nice 
So this industry is full of good people who are out there and luckily we met them. And, and if I'm working with somebody, it's because they're good at what they do and they're actually, you can sit down and have a beer with them in the evening as well. Yeah. So I would say I, it's a situation I've thankfully never had to find myself in. Yeah, I would echo that same sentiment in, in a couple of degrees, apart from the animal comment. Which we'll say, okay. What I would say as well is <laughs> I've worked with a few people who are very technically competent, Yeah, who I really didn't bond with, who gel with, mm. and I wouldn't work with again. Which is interesting, there, isn't it? Yeah. And there are probably some people out there who are maybe not so technically competent, but if a toilet was blocked, they'd go and unblock it for you, and I'd work with them. So if I had to lean one way, it would be towards the can-do, no-problem attitude. Yeah, I'm, I try to subscribe to that as best myself, as and when I can as well. The reality is I try and believe that in any instance, if there's something that needs to get done, it's going to get done. And it doesn't matter what it is, you know. And especially, but, but it has to be, they have to produce something though, because otherwise you get it back into the intern situation where you can end up with a horrible mess. There has to be a nice person. person is there in the first place. Yeah. But I don't know. I think my career has probably changed somewhat because initially it was probably those two points. It was like, right, skill set and like the attitude. What's it like to have that person around? And then sort of like a, probably a third one to that is just uh, the chemistry. Like yeah. someone with them actually being good and actually get on with them. But you have to be able to like, from a director's perspective, and also, you know, the, the slight stints I've had moonlighting as a director of photography as well. Working with a director, director of photography, I found the most challenging personally. But working as a director with a director of photography, someone I'm working with and liaising with, I found to be an interesting evolution in the career. And it then becomes not only just how technically proficient they are, but actually really important that we can communicate. Like, and not just in a friendly way, like communication yeah. of ideas and actually yeah. being able to, like, I've got a vision in my head. And as the largest and most important part of my job is get from what's here into the real world, into the physical. And obviously, if I'm working with a director of photography and a team of creatives, it's about getting to that that last bit of whatever that looks like to make sure we're doing the best job. And so often, you know, I find myself almost a bit heartbroken. I get to work with someone that I've been looking forward to. Work. It doesn't happen very often, but you get to work with someone that you're really excited about working with. You perhaps just aren't seeing eye to eye. Now, of course, that's a lot down to experience, how much time you physically spend doing that. You might discover your language is compatible after a period of time, but how often do we really get the opportunity to actually cultivate that and, and find out what that is? So... It's, it's why when you have a good working relationship with somebody, you try and hold on to it and you build your crew around you. There's, I've, I've been, I worked with a crew a couple of years ago uh, that I'd never worked with before. And the director was a really genuinely lovely person. And the director of photography didn't treat him like a piece of muck, but kicked back against him a lot. You know, the director would have a vision and the director of photography would kind of, well, I think this, I think that, but I was like, hang on your job is to bring the director's vision to life and you're now wasting this production's time, which is costing us money. God, so what a statement as well. What a statement that is wasting production's time and money and everyone like, I guess that sentiment is a really interesting one to me. So many different perspectives, but I mean, at the core of it, this means so much to so many. Yeah. If you really think about the create, I mean, we, we kind of touch base, we went like this and we kind of, <laughs> we, you know, danced around the various points. But at the core of it, there was something that got you started in this industry. There was a little catalyst or a little spark or something that ignited your passion within it that made you want to continue. Now, I understand that that's been quite different because the, 
the the thing at the core of it's been automotive. So it's not necessarily been I want to be a film maker. I don't want to you know make films for the sake of making films. I want to make automotive films. I want to make films yeah. that I can go and be around cars and all that sort of stuff. But you know, from a personal perspective, kind of looking at things a little bit differently and going. I want to be a filmmaker first. And then there's a, you know, it all starts and seeds from somewhere. But as a result of that being tender age of 31, even though I look 45 now, at a certain point in time, there becomes a point in your career where you have to go, right, this means so much to me because I've put so much into it. I've invested so much of my own time and everyone else is here for the same reason. They're either following my vision or I'm working towards a vision of someone else's. And, it, you know, it's not just about money at that point in time, I guess is the point. It should never be about money. It should never be about money. If anyone's looking at this and wanting to get into the industry because they're seeing decent day rates and all that stuff, I, I could have made a lot more money by doing something completely different 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, money, money never came into it. My first moves within the industry, I took pay cuts. I slept on office floors. I sofa surfed. And going back to your point about why i did that with cars is because i knew about cars mm-hmm. um, so as much as i had a passion for them it was also because i didn't know about making cooking programs yeah so to go and do that would have been a little bit like i, I didn't really understand that sort of thing so um, that's why i've ended up where i am now within cars and as i've gone on through it i as much as i'd like to think i could go off and film lots of other stuff or produce lots of other stuff yeah Production is production. You need those essential elements that we discussed earlier on. But in reality, filming cars is very specific, just as is filming food, etc. You know, whatever you're filming, they have their own different sets of parameters. And I learned that in stills photography that mm. you light things in a certain way. But then I also aspire to mid-century design. So mid-20th century design, uh, Raymond Lowy, um, all these big American industrial designers. Sorry? I said you're losing me with these references completely. But so Raymond Lowy very famously designed the Lucky Strike cigarette packet. Okay. And the Lucky Strike cigarette packet used to be we green. We don't go smoking, by the way, just for everyone. No. <laughs> Does anybody even smoke anymore? If they do, they're a f- But on one side of the packet, it had an orange logo, and on, and on the rest of the pack was green. Yeah. And Raymond Lowy made a bet with the owner of the company and basically said, I will redesign your packaging and in six months I'll double your sales. And if I do, you pay me X amount of money. Mm-hmm. So then obviously the boss of the company's like, Yeah, I love some of that. So Lowy took the design, made the pack all white, so no more need for green printing ink. So he took that cost away and he put the logo on both sides. So no matter which way up the pack sat, you saw the logo which then raised brand awareness. More people bought the cigarettes. He won his bet, that kind of stuff. So my point is sometimes, you, you know, and he designed offices and he designed cars and he designed boats. Probably if should have focused on those examples, but whatever. Well, if you, took, <laughs> if you take good practice, of course, you can apply it to lots of different facets of what we do. And being a producer for me is just being due diligence. So talk to you, the director, what do you need? Not sitting in my office going, oh, they'll probably want this and they'll probably want this because another director wanted that. Mm-hmm. It's respecting you as a member of the team. So the runner, the runner might need a, a, a vehicle, a, 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 an automatic car because they don't know how to drive a manual. That's cool because if they're the best runner, they can have an automatic car. Yeah, yeah. So it's just that 
in production, being completely aware of everyone. And you can't be completely aware of everyone, but I like to keep the team to a certain size where you can keep a bit of a head handle on. Yeah, of course. Well, we've got another little question here as well, which hopefully follows on from what we are saying. Uh, when you are researching and doing that pre-production, doing pre-production only for the client to say no, okay, so we're tracking back a bit to what we were saying earlier. When you're Hello. researching and doing that pre-production only for the client to say no, is that a net loss on time and effort or is it an agreement to pay a rate even when the client says no? So that's an interesting one, to be fair. Like how much yeah, is, are let you me guess. investing in your own time? Uh it's kind of a risk assessment uh, right. from the very start for me. Uh, so we are going through the process at the moment with a client and we're at the point where no money has changed hands. There's no PO numbers. We might not get the job. So you look at how much effort is going to go into that. And I would say there's probably about a week's worth, a week to 10 days work on every job you do that you might not get paid for. So if you don't get the job, you're not going to get paid for it. So what you do is you sit down and each year, I probably about 15 to 20% of my work is unpaid. Mm -hmm. But that... Surely you is, factor that in though. You factor that into well, you just consider model, it. right? And just factor yeah. it in. I'm going to you work just consider it. So you know if you're, gonna, if you're going to earn a certain amount of money in a year out of jobs, you know that you're also going to have to fund another 15 to 20% of your life out of that money yeah uh, i guess a lot of people don't necessarily think about that though they can't just go oh i'm not getting paid so i'm not getting paid they don't necessarily factor in that rate scheme and go oh, okay well actually I'm, I'm actually looking at 20 days getting paid for 10 potentially in terms of how much money and time you put into it but but also that's, that's having your own production company and being a producer is because yeah. if i came to you as a director i, I mean say, we speculate as well you know we speculate as, as directors you know we don't yeah. get everything that we put ourselves and we might tender for things. We might be going for jobs that might have four or five different directors. We might put a treatment in and get quite far down that process of approval before we yeah. you know, get in the door slamming your face. So it happens both ways. But that's that's why you get paid the day rate you do, because people look at that day rate and they go, buddy hell, they're getting paid £10 a day. Whoa, you know, I wish I could get paid that. I you wish go, I could get yeah. £10 a day. That'd be great. Yeah. But, but, but that's my thing with having a production company, is that you can then building a margin to everybody on set yeah so you are bringing all those people together through your experience and some companies will put 15 percent on everybody on set so there's different ways as a, a, of pricing a job up to a client and you can be a cost plus agency as a production company and this is when you get into agencies production companies all these different ways of structuring it creative agencies production houses who own kits Kind of leads me on to one of the questions from my own perspective then. Is there anything you can say out there, again, to the audience who's paying attention uh, and is perhaps in a different part of the career to myself, yourself? Is there any way that they can, I don't know, uh, again, a bit of a cheat sheet or something, uh, a bit of, you know, some steps, cut some corners in terms of identifying those kind of people they might want to work with and kind of cut out the side of things? You know, how can, I, how can people identify the companies they want to work with a little bit easier? they wasting their own time. Is there sort of, do you have a bit of a, a brief it? on when you're getting introduced to a new client perhaps where it's like, okay, maybe I'm going to work with this guy. I never worked with him before. Is there any way of identifying perhaps, you know, cutting, cutting through that noise a little bit? Social media, follow them on social media channels, see what they're posting. People are getting more wise to it, but naively people still, their, their Facebook accounts are wide open. 
Mm-hmm. So you can go in, you can see what their kids look like. You know, it's it's so you can you can build a lifestyle picture of who they are, right? Um, and without sounding like a complete stalker, sound a little bit like that. I wasn't going to clue yeah, out on it. You know, see see how they're spending their money, see how they're presenting themselves. Are they are they working with charities? Do they have pets? Do they I mean, just references? Are, I guess a thing here. Have you worked with anyone I know? Have you you know all those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, I I have only on a couple of occasions found people blind through the internet interesting um and that's maybe maybe 15 percent of the people we work with i found blind through the internet now yeah. i would say i found some absolute stars through doing that um including you know the the film minister austria his right hand man is just the most amazing fixer and I found him by literally phoning the government and going, oh, what's his name? What's You've his got film Ernst Vogel. Ernst Vogel. Ernst Vogel. There you go. He's the star of the day, right? Look him up. He's brilliant. He's great. Um, so I would say always talk to your networks. And if you, if you live on the Isle of, if you live in the Outer Hebrides and you don't know anybody in the industry, but you want to get in there, contact people, follow people on social media. Don't, pester them don't ask them to give you any secrets just show them some of your value you know show them something that you're doing in so much as get them interested give them a reason to want to talk to you uh, and, and if you don't have that reason then maybe this isn't the industry for you this is good advice as i could have possibly asked for you there really but certainly incredibly valuable in that regard as well being able to actually approach the people that you might want to work with, but in an organic way, in a way that actually yeah. makes sense rather than being like, ah, oh, can I beg you for a job, please? Is there something going on, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I- it's the will, it's the will work for free thing. Like I said earlier on for anybody that wasn't listening then, um, anybody that says I'll work for free, it's kind of like, that's great. But why, 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 you know, give me something that, you know, show me a camera technique, show me something you've done that I can then maybe go to Al and go, Al, have you seen this guy? Have you seen what he's doing? Like he, he wants to come and do some stuff with us. Like, can we make this work? So there's, um, yeah, a be, be the person who's invaluable, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, only to add to that is just, yeah, I guess don't be shy. Get yourself out there as much as you possibly yeah. can. I understand that's difficult right now. Than ever right now. People that can, you know, people are more than welcome to hit us up, right? In this regard, yeah. whether it be for advice or whether it be to just give a bit of gentle and honest feedback in that regard. Yeah. And we'll do our best to get, to do that. And don't, don't be afraid of rejection because it's not rejection. If you, if you don't get a job, it's, and I learned this very early on as well, that if you don't get a job, it's nothing personal. Mm. It's just because your overall image, what you do, what you specialize in isn't suitable for that campaign. If we don't get a film from a big major manufacturer, we are often a small part of a large campaign and our color palette or our voiceover treatment or something like that might not be suitable for the entire, you know, they, they, you have you to respect take that stuff personally as well. Yeah. And it might be something yeah. that you'll never ever find out. So it's just bear, doesn't bear thinking about it. It's yeah. like, cool. I didn't get that one. There's always more work. There's a out reason there. there's why. Yeah. And there's always something else going on. And it might be, like you said, that there's just not the right time or there might be not the right subject. And yeah, all those fun things. Anyways, yeah. we'll look to round this up then. So, yes. Bryn, yeah, we've been talking for quite a while. Yeah, <laughs> Bryn, have you got anything uh, you got coming up? 
Sterling Moss stuff, which we were super excited personally. Me, I'm super yes. excited about seeing that. But yeah, so um, the, the little Sterling Moss film, maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. Really beautiful little story. After that, there's going to be a series of small vignettes. We interviewed, I sat face to face with Sterling Moss, Jackie Stewart, uh, Derek Bell, loads of really iconic people. If you don't know cars, these, these guys have done incredible things that will probably never happen again. They all came out with these little short stories. So we're going to release some of them. Uh, we've Where got a couple of big commercial projects. Sorry? Where can we see it? It will be on YouTube on the Outrun, uh, Outrun Films YouTube channel. Amazing. Uh, which, cur- which currently has one film on there, which is the Bugatti behind-the-scenes film that Al did a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm starting a podcast, which is talking to people about working with cars, but in the industry. So if you've made, like me, you've made a living out of your passion, and that passion is cars, it's test drivers, it's filmmakers, all that kind of stuff. Um, you find that on your what, Instagram? Is that that's going to be, be yeah, I'm going to announce it through Instagram. It's basically called Piston Bully which is a little bit of a name that I've run with for about 15 years. I, I should have been recording it, so I want to do it face-to-face um, because having interviewed people for so long, I really get off on that. This actually worked really well with yeah. you because I think I know you. You know, we've got yeah, history, yeah. Yeah. so yeah. I, can, I can judge your body language. But if I haven't worked with somebody before or spent time with someone, I need to do it face-to-face. Um, and, yeah, just a couple, couple of... Um, couple of commercial projects hopefully uh if not we're all going to be re-editing stuff and reissuing it for the next few months here in england you're doing good that's what we want to hear from you Things yeah man what about what about you and, th- and this and thank you to cvp as well for supporting this and, and being able to make it happen and having tech support in the background these guys have been listening to us warble on for the last you know still rolling yeah. for two hours but thank you to you for, for getting me involved mate really great. Oh, honestly, Appreciate it. absolute pleasure Bryn uh, you were the first person that came to mind because of the simple amount of backstory we have we very much started our career at the very beginning <laughs> um, so no it's it's been a, an absolute pleasure thank you for sharing a handful of stories with us um, if anyone's got any questions to follow up with we will be back we'll bring we'll uh, bring bring Bryn back that's a fun one <laughs> um in the next coming weeks or so but uh these will live here on cvp's youtube channel and we'll we'll touch base with you as and when very soon hopefully um but otherwise yeah everyone that's doing their thing yeah keep doing your thing keep finding you know keep the hope alive keep the creativity going and i uh, look forward to hearing more about your projects anything yeah, else you yeah. it, uh, no just stay in touch and I, i'll keep an eye um on the youtube comments that pop up after this as well and try to reply to anything if anyone's got any questions yeah by all means find, we're here yeah find us on social media i'm Bryn Musselwhite, as it's spelt on screen and uh and outrun films you know and yeah josh is josh allen director and by all means guys feel free to yeah. talk to us yeah so otherwise thank everyone for thank you everyone for tuning in and spending this our debut podcast thank you very much to cvp for having us uh yeah, next time, guys. well that was it for episode one didn't go too badly i don't think thank you very much to Bryn for being on the show but thank you guys for tuning in and checking it out we're working on the format on a weekly basis so we're looking to develop this whole thing make sure it delivers some information but at the same time it's just a bit fun it's an entertaining place to be so 
We're back every week on CVP's YouTube channel and shortly after, right here, we'll get uploaded to the podcast platform so you can obviously listen and download it. And if you should feel the need to hit us up or get in touch, it's Josh Allen Director on Instagram or Josh Allen Filmmaker on Facebook. On episode two, we welcome Stefan Bonini. He's a filmmaker, director, specialises mostly in documentaries, but he's done it all, music videos, all that fun stuff. He's a master of the guerrilla style and he's going to share with us some of his insight into his working style, how he gets work, what kind of stuff he wants to do and just some of his general philosophy. I think he also shares with us what it's like to get punched in the face or at least why it's important to us. Until next time, uh, thank you very much for tuning in.